Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's talk some local stuff. We talk about that a lot because it's important stuff. But how does it get covered? Let's talk to one of our friends. He's been on the program before. He does local coverage and local reporting. Adam Bass. You know him as Adam Bass of Mass with that clever Twitter handle. He's a reporter with the North Star Reporter. He's also a contributor to WBSM up there in Massachusetts. How are you, sir? Good to see you again. Good to be here again, Andrew. And uh, thank you for having me on the show. Always happy to have you. All right. Here's the thing. I've been talking about it. I've wrote a couple pieces about it. I bring it up on this program. People just don't pay enough attention to local stuff right now, especially the legislative process, especially city, municipal, county commission, city council, whichever one you may have, depending on where you live. I thought it would be instructive to actually talk to somebody who covers us all the time, which you do. Media has gotten nationalized. There's just no debate about that. Right. It has. Local media is struggling. It's trying to find its niche. I think a lot of local media is starting to figure out this print media, modern media thing, but it ain't quite there yet. You cover it. What is it? the difference? Because you've done both. What's the difference when you're covering local news as far as getting it to the community where it matters the most? Well, see, the, the important thing, Andrew, is that you have to understand who benefits from reading the news and that's going to be everybody in that community and basically what you're trying to do when you're finding an audience when reporting local news is that you want to keep it close to what matters in the community so for example in north Alboro, one of the communities i cover one big thing that's going on there is housing there's this huge housing project going up or being planned excuse me called uh, a 40r project and that's a mixed-use project now some people are very excited about that because you know massachusetts has a housing crisis but other people not as excited because they feel as if it's going to bring in too many people it's going to cause traffic problems and really it's sort of like creating what i like to call the spider web model so a spider web has a center a nucleus and then you have all the little things coming out of it so different people in different areas so maybe on one ring it's the it's the legislatures or the uh the town councilmen talk about the 40r project some who agree some who disagree then it's going to be the businesses who benefit from it and then it's going to be the people who benefit from it or don't like it everyone plays a part in local news it's not just uh, single people like a president or a sing or a Joe Manchin who's calling all the shots. It's everybody. Everyone has a role, and you need to find out who those roles are and who those power players are. That way, you can you can deliver it to an audience who can understand. Okay, how does it affect me? How, why do I care? Why should I care? 
This is a good example, Adam Bass and Mass. Let's take housing for a second because that's a very popular social media debate. It's a popular pundit debate. I cover it on this show a lot because it is important. There is a high housing crisis. There is a lot of things that go into housing that go into things like economics and politics. But that's the perfect example of where local reporting can really come into because the national narratives, you know, Yimby versus NIMBYs. Yes, in my backyard. No, in my backyard. If you're against affordable housing, you're, you know, bad people. If you're not for it, you know, blah, 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 blah. The problem is locally, there's legitimate reasons why you might not want a particular project in a particular place that doesn't fit that national narrative. But there's local concerns that are very unique. And those people may not be against, you know, affordable housing or whatever it is at all. It just may be that specific project, that specific location. They know the people that are behind it. They may know the actual developers that are behind it. Right. Or the reverse is true. They don't know the developers because they're out of town developers and they got questions about them. Those are all legitimate issues. They don't fit the national narrative, but that's where the local reporting and the local flavor give the context you need to find out what the actual events and what it means is, right? Right. Here's the thing. I'll give you actually a perfect example of this. So one of the town councilors I cover, uh, he said he's not against affordable housing. He likes affordable housing, but he didn't vote for the 40-yard project because his belief is that the better way for the town to grow is through industrial uh, buildings. So buildings that bring in industry, such as your, your Amazon. Um, so your Amazon, so things that make things, which is industry. Now, the town manager says, okay, I agree with that, but I also think that housing brings a little more growth. So as you said, Andrew, one of the things that's very true, especially on social media and nationalized news, it's very black and white, but you know, it's like, oh, you can build a railroad easily. It's like, no, you can't really because A, you know, you got to look at the land, you got to look at all the places, or housing. For example, developers may want to build affordable housing, but one of the big problems is that it doesn't bring a lot of money for them. You know, building three, four apartment housing, that brings a lot of money for them because the people who come in have that money to spend. So how am I going to make money as, let's say I'm a developer, how am I going to make money? I got to make a three, four bedroom apartment. Now, the town manager in North Alberta was trying his best to make sure that there's a way to make money for those developers in making more what he calls holistic housing. But obviously, it's still a process. It, there's no end to the crisis of housing or any other crisis. And there's going to be diff different people talking about why it's an issue for them, whether it be those who do, do not have a home or those who have a home and may say, well, wait a minute, is this the right place to do it? Now, me personally, I'm just covering this. My job as a reporter is not to give opinions. It's to give information and let other people decide those opinions because we've sort of lost our way as reporters are just giving their opinions. It's not the Adam Bass show. It's it's the North Alboro show w narrated by Adam Bass. That's the reality. Yeah, Adam Bass joining us. All right, take us inside of one of these meetings, city council, yeah, uh, let's something do this. like this. Because people, look, there's been a thing, I've always been an advocate of like, if you if you don't go to a meeting at least once or twice to at least familiarize yourself with them. Look, Robert's Rules of Order is its own separate language. I understand there's a lot of minutia, a lot of it's boring, a lot of it's just procedural stuff. For somebody that's never been to a city council or a county commission meeting, if you live rurally, you know, whatever your governing body is, the first time we're walking in and never give them a little bit of a survival guide. What should they be looking at? What should they be listening for besides the procedure and the nomenclature and all yes. the boring stuff? What are they actually paying attention to? Because really 
how those council members or county commission members are conducting themselves are almost as important as whatever the actual things being discussed as far as who actually knows what they're doing or not, right? Right. So here's something I would actually recommend doing, especially for those who want to go to a city council or county commission meeting. First of all, before you do anything, say hello to the city councilors, okay? They are willing to say hello. They love chatting you up. They love talking to people. They love making their, they love talking. And really helping to understand who they are really gets a good example of how things are going to go down in the meeting. Now, when that meeting happens, pay attention to who talks in the meeting, not just the city council president who's conducting the meeting. Talk to, uh, look who's um, um, motion, uh, bringing motions to the table. Look who's deciding to let their voices be heard. And really, who kind of agrees with somebody on the city council? Like, who, who becomes like best friends in their uh, giving of motions or who butts heads. Um, I remember um, there was one motion for a new bridge to be built in New Bedford. And one of the council members said, well, I want a special session to hold off and let's just review everything because I don't think we've been giving enough time. Another counselor agreed with them and he was sitting right next to him. They were chatting it up and I realized, okay, they've known each other for a long time and they probably agree with one another. Then you have another city councilor, a newer city councilor, relatively young, and say, look, you know, we have this opportunity to build this bridge. And the MBTA, which is the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, which is which is basically where the trains go in Massachusetts, um, we have this, they're paying for us. They're there for the build. So yes, it doesn't have to pay anything. So let's do this. And it passed. Uh, the, the bill that uh, allowed the city to have the bridge passed. And then when you're done with that, go talk to the counselors, ask them simple questions. You know, it doesn't matter if you're not a reporter, you can ask questions, ask simple questions when you're going there. there there's an old saying, um, you know, I, I'm Jewish and there's an old saying uh, every Passover, be the, be the children who ask the questions, right? If you ask questions, you're gonna come out smarter. You're not gonna go in dumber, you're smarter that you're coming in with questions. Adam Bass and Mass. Hey, this brings up another thing, though. Um, somewhere like Massachusetts, this is, again, you know, same song, second dance. The national narrative doesn't fit always in local politics. Massachusetts, very blue state, very liberal state, very progressive state. This is all known. But the thing about these local issues is people want to ride in and start slapping, you know, the partisan national narratives on it. It just doesn't work that way in local politics. It's not that there isn't partisanship and there isn't, you know, the party line and things like that. It's just it's a total different tenor and a different pace. And especially somewhere where you have a little bit more, you know, super majorities on a lot of stuff, things are dealt with differently. And that partisan horse race narrative stuff doesn't really fit the local politics, does it? No. Well, we got to remember one of the things that's true about Massachusetts is that we don't have that that many competitive elections, you know. Um, the GOP here, they don't really try that hard, and they're going through a bit of a crisis management right now. And the Democrats, you know, uh, it's sort of like becoming a Republican. It's sort of what uh, Jim Justice did. 
you're switching that D to an R or R to a D, it's it's a chance of survival. Um, <laughs> and the reality is that in local races, there's it's not a partisan uh, thing. You know, obviously there might be some who lean more a little left to the right, but at the end of the day, they're still good friends. I'll, I'll give you a great story. I was covering an election um, for city council, Ward 3, city council in New Bedford. And you had one candidate who was like an outwardly Republican, but everyone else was just like, just them. When the, when the, when the results were called in, the two top two rivals, they were so happy for each other. They were hogging. They were, they were cheering. Um, and all the candidates were cheering. And they said, you know, we lost. But you know what? Good for them. And they're excited to run against each other. They're they're really really excited, and I think that's missing from our local pol or from our national politics. I'm not calling for everyone to be like nonpartisan. I'm I'm calling for people to realize that it's not as black and white. Politics is it's not even shades of gray. It's so many different colors and so many things that make different people tick. And you have to really understand that when do when when covering politics and understanding politics. It's not this red versus blue. It's it's red, blue, yellow, green, beige, chartreuse, turquoise, magenta. All these different people with all these different combinations. It's going to affect how you think of politics when you look at it that way. Yeah, it sure does. Adam Bass. All right, folks all over the country. Look, there's still local media out there. Talk about for just a second, though, how they can follow it more and more. You look, the local papers that have survived, if they're surviving, they figured out how to get online because either they right. did or they didn't survive. That's how that works. Local news stations, local TV stations, local PBS, a lot of them have really good reporters. There's now, you know, a lot of nonprofit news organizations. Just walk people through if they want to follow their local news better, where to start. And is this one of those things kind of like natural what I've done? You know, you kind of got to go a la carte with your reporting sometimes. Find those good local. Look, I got my four or five guys that keep me up to date on all the West Virginia stuff. Talk about getting a rotation so that you're getting that local information outside that national market. Because you're going to have to kind of do this yourself and curate it yourself, aren't you? Right. So one thing I would recommend first, if anyone has social media, go first follow uh, Report for America. This is a great nonprofit organization that has young reporters like myself go to different parts of the country and report at different local at different local outlets. From there, you can find said local outlets. Uh, you can find local papers. You can find local television stations. And if you can't find them to begin with, the, the smaller ones, go think, look a little bigger. Um, you know, look at your equivalent of the Boston Globe. If your state has one, uh, go look at your local television station because you will find the, the network that they're building. It, different reporters know all the all the all the people in the business so you know your local pbs affiliate might know uh where to find local uh outlets to read and don't be afraid to contact them send them an email that's what i did when i got started i reached out to all these people at gbh news in in, in boston at uh, wbsm where i currently contribute uh and also listen to your uh, local am stations you know you might find something that's not as partisan there um, in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, there are plenty of AM stations that, you know, do, do lean a little right or left, but there are some that do tell uh, straight news. And if you can find them, give them a listen. Yeah, Adam Bass. He's a reporter from North Star Reporter, contributor for WBSM. 
also got a little podcast called the cod cabin i'll let him explain that one to you uh let folks know what you got going on how they can follow you and how they can keep up with you till we get you back on the program again my sure friend. sure so you can follow me at the northstarreporter.com or wbsm when i'm posting articles there adam bass of mass of twitter that's adam bass of mass or listen to our podcast the cod cabin where we talk about massachusetts politics it's a it's a real blast it even rhymes, so you know it's going to yeah. be good, right? Uh, like Adam Bass of Mass. That's his Twitter handle, Adam Bass, our good friend up there. Keep doing the good work of local reporting, my friend, and we'll talk soon. Take care. Thank you, sir. Hi, welcome back to Her Tell. Okay, she's one of our favorites. She's on here all the time because she does that kind of good work. She's a freelance media strategist, award-winning author, not to be confused with just a plain old author like me, Gabriella Hoffman's back on Her Tell. How you doing, my friend? Good to see you again. Good to see you. I'm not an award-winning author. I'm an award-winning writer. I haven't written any award-winning books yet or books, period, but I appreciate you talking me up, Andrew. <laughs> oh, writer, schmider, author, Tinker Taylor, whatever. It all works. You're great. Uh, let's talk a little conservation, which we always love talking to you about it. You've heard her advertisement right here on her tell for her conservation podcast. We'll talk about that in a minute. You are out in Idaho and besides the usual fun stuff, like, you know, kayaking the snake river and the beautiful countryside out there, you put some work in, you went out to Lava Ridge and this project that's out there, there's a video to this that we're going to link to. That's really well done. You even got some Fox news coverage on this story. But the long and the short of it is they want to put a, a wind farm up on this ridge. It's a kind of a rolling hill sort of area. Give folks the background on this project. And then we'll talk about the fact that you didn't just cover this. You went there. You talked to the people. But what was the project in its perfect on the paper form supposed to be? The free market environmental group that I work with, CFACT, enlisted me with going to Idaho's Magic Valley. So the Lava Ridge Wind Project is a project, a really big scale project, wind, wind farm, as you mentioned, that would affect and imperil, to be argued, actually, this really sensitive, kind of fascinating region of Idaho. If you've ever been to Idaho, it's very diverse landscape. You have mountains, you have the sawtooths, you have Idaho's um, southern region where we were primarily at. It's more prairie, kind of deserty. And this region of Magic Valley is actually. Um, very notable because of the lava rock structure. You almost feel like you're on the moon. Um, there's a famous national monument called Craters of the Moon. It's co-managed by the National Park Service and Bureau of Land Management. And this whole region, so you have um, very fertile farmland, you have national monuments, you have a Japanese internment site sitting right on the edge of where this proposed wind project is. You have the Snake River, you have lots of different kind of facets to this area, this beautiful kind of untouched rural area. It's not a backwards place. They have commerce, they have business. They're largely thriving when things are really economically prosperous. But like any you know, kind of small town place that are always affected by booms and busts in the economy. Um, but they've largely been a productive region. People are very easygoing. They they want to preserve some of the, the livelihoods that they've been doing. They really value the farming lifestyle, small business, outdoor recreation. 
And when they were told that this project is going to be coming to the area and it's a priority of the Biden administration, many of them started to do their research. They wanted to research what would happen if this were to come to their region, kind of the environmental toll that would be entailed from constructing it. And when they did their research, consulted other people who've had wind farms of this magnitude or close to this magnitude, this would be the largest wind farm proposed, onshore wind farm constructed if it goes through and gets the approval. They said it's on too many sensitive areas. It would impact wildlife migration corridors. It would affect birds of prey, raptors. It would kill a lot of them. It would have obviously effects on the water aquifer. That region sits on one of the largest untapped underwater rather water aquifers and they have water shortages. So that would be a complicated thing. And these wind turbines would require so much concrete, so many different materials, rare earth minerals that are very hard to procure. So a lot of kind of paradoxes to this. And you see this community kind of coalescing together. People of all political persuasions, a lot of the activists were telling me, even though they may lean more to the right, that we work with people of all political stripes because this is our home. We don't want this to be affected in this way because once you kind of retrofit this project in a place like this, there's no turning back. It's really hard to kind of recover certain things um, on the landscape. When you touch farmland like this, in this manner, it's really hard to make it productive and valuable and useful. And then just the potential proximity to these really sensitive sites, the National Monument to the North and Craters of the Moon, which is at least a million acres, uh, first set outside by Calvin Coolidge and then President Bill Clinton expanded this. And then you have this Japanese internment camp. We always hear this administration say, we are very mindful of national monuments and sacred spaces, but they put so-called clean energy projects above these very sensitive sites. This particular site that I'm alluding to, which is the Minidoka um, National Historic Site, it's really, it's like a few miles away from one of the farms that I visited and interviewed. And I thought it was important to go to Idaho, not just to be like, okay, I don't like this. I'm going to say it from afar. I want to, I, I can deduce this from afar because I have, you know, doubts about certain technologies, but you can't be a observer and a reporter and a documentarian from afar. You need to go to where the people are. You have to go on the ground. You have to report. You have to absorb the region, get to know its people, see what it's really like. And aside from doing some fun activities, that was just one small piece of it. I got to talk to the people who this would affect. Like I said, I alluded to a farmer whose ranch sits on the largest underwater aquifer. His property sits right next to this Minidoka National Historic Site, which was one of 10 internment camps that theater, uh, not theater, FDR, the other Roosevelt, excuse me, had set up and 13,000 people were unfairly imprisoned in this particular camp. So they want to remember it. They want to make sure that people are aware of the history and just all these different kind of conflicting factors and just so much to be at stake and, and a lot of things lost. And these people don't want this kind of rural gentrification. I think that's the way, the term that they wanted me to use and wanted me to become familiar with. They, they're worried about rural gentrification of this magnitude because it would essentially dilute what these rural areas are. And so that's kind of the long short of it, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> Gabriella Hoffman joining us. Here, there's a couple technical things we got to knock out here. You talked about this being a really big project, one of the biggest we've ever done onshore. This is 400 turbines. This is going to stretch not 
a this is going to stretch for miles. This is going to be a huge site. I know where I lived in Germany, the second time I was in Germany, there was a huge, what they considered a very large wind farm. We would drive up to the top of the hill above where we live, and we'd drive up there because my kids were little and they just thought it was cool. That was 120, and that was one yeah. of the biggest in Germany. And that was considered, this is 400 of these things. Mm -hmm. This is a huge, massive area. The other thing we got to touch on, this is Bureau of Land Management. So this isn't one of those eminent domain or pro mm -hmm. like this is the government land. So they, you know, they can do pretty much what they want on it. And the company that's behind this is a New York City company that's coming in. So fair or unfair, that's just the perception of the locals. You know how those sorts of things go. That's a lot of cross streams, but you just touched on one that people probably aren't going to think about when it comes to renewable energy. What does water got to do with a wind turbine? The entire West, you travel a lot, you cover conservation. One of the biggest stories going that only occasionally gets headlines out here on the East Coast, the water situation in the West is at a critical level. Even something like a major construction project that's going to go for years They've got legitimate concerns about the aquifer and the farmer that you interviewed on the video that we're going to link to. He's, a specific, he's like the, the aquifer alone can't handle the stress of this. This thing is crossing a lot of streams, and that's why you're seeing that across the spectrum pushback. Not that they're even against it. They're just wondering, if, is this too big? Is this too ambitious? And is this the right time and the right place for this project? That's a good assessment of it. Absolutely. And Magic Valley, Idaho is not the only place where this is playing out. There are lots of other places, rural communities in Kansas and Wisconsin and Michigan and all over the country where projects like this are playing out. But this is a unique place because of just the different lava rock formations, the Snake River, you know, meandering its way through. There's a lot of historical context to this too. Obviously, the Western heritage, Evil Knievel had his famous jump at uh, the Perrin Bridge in Twin Falls. And this would, like you said, affect so many different acres. Uh, if it were to go to completion, it would be 73,000 acres where these 400 turbines would reside on. And that's a lot of land to worry about. I mean, obviously, yes, Bureau of Land Management land. So people are like, yeah, well, they can essentially do whatever they want. But when those Bureau of Land Management lands kind of cross over onto private property or there's kind of borders, where there's maybe unknowns or there's crossover, the people who have private property or private land that is situated close to it have to be really concerned because would some of the <clears throat> construction interfere with, let's say, the productivity of their land? Um, so it, it's you know it, it it's questionable when it it does situate near private property too. So that's what people are really concerned about um, there and just. The magnitude of the project, you can see, you'll be able to see it for miles. They approximate that as tall as a, a 740 feet individual turbines would be. There isn't anything like this in the United States already. A lot of people are really concerned about some of the news pol noise pollution aspects to this because they do emit some sort of sonar that does affect people's health. It's not some conspiratorial thing that I dug up, but a lot of people have cited that's a, a concern. The amount of natural resources that would it would that it would take and also fossil fuels that you'd have to exhaust to build these and to back these up is also very questionable it's it's questionable as to whether or not this is truly a green project why do these renewable projects such as this proposed lava ridge project have to take up so many acres of land if it's going to be renewable and carbon free something that is environmentally friendly or touted to be that way shouldn't be taking up so many acres of land to achieve a certain you know magnitude of megawatts of wind energy 
Wind is also very intermittent. It's not a reliable energy source. Um, the Western United States is susceptible to earthquakes, other natural disasters. I don't know if that's really factored into it as much, but yes, people are just concerned and, and they should be. And how many rare earth minerals in terms of tons and, and supplies are going to be used when they don't even want to do permitting reform? They're, like I said, there's so many paradoxes to this. People are going to see this from their homes. You're going to see it from as far away from Craters of the Moon, like I told you, that national monument. And when people go to this region of Idaho, they don't want to see skyscrapers or tall structures. They want to enjoy nature. They want to be off the beaten path. And like I said, this is what rural gentrification would look like. It's bringing ugly aspects into these areas that kind of want to be left alone and untouched and, and kind of preserved. So that's what I think the locals were really concerned about. And, and like I said, it's almost a consensus of locals opposing this. You have these people coming from out of state, like you said, New York, they created a shell company saying that we're for the vested interests of the locals, when obviously that's not the case. When one of the company representatives was probed about where is this energy going to go to when it's potentially generated or if it is ever generated. And they found out that most of this energy is not going to even be enjoyed by Idahoans. It's going to go to California and Nevada. So that's the kicker with it too. So it doesn't really benefit Idahoans. It's kind of NIMBY types coming to Idaho. They, they hate red states, but they love their potential to extract energy and then import that energy into their state. So it's NIMBYs coming saying they love this green energy, but they don't want it in their backyards, but they don't mind exhausting red states that have a lot of natural resources and very arable land to be able to do this. So lots of paradoxes involved here. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? 
this is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Yeah, and the reason we're talking about this, Gabrielle Hoffman joining us. Again, this is Idaho, so you're like, well, what do I care about Idaho? Because this is something we're going to see over and over again, and that we've seen this before already. We have, we all know that green energy is going to come at some point. We have the argument of how close we are to that, how far we are from that. We can discuss that, but we know there's a movement towards that. We know the government is involved in this. We know big business is involved in this, and we know there's regulation involved in it. So how all that, that's going to affect you where you live at some points. So that's why we're having this conversation. I, I'm reading through the material on this, and you link to a lot of it, and you refer to a lot of it in your video reporting on this. It's really interesting. Even the government can't get on the same page on this. The National Park Service had concerns. They were advocating for, hey, can we divide, because there's so much land. Again, this is Bureau of Land Management, so the actual ownership of the land isn't the issue. They're not doing eminent domain here. The National Park Service raised concerns it's like maybe we should spread this out a little bit, cluster it in different areas of the site instead of one big spread out site. Uh, one of the local folks, they talked about, you know, not having it close to the historic sites. You can move it back out of the sight lines like you were talking about. There was a local group that called it uh, the subdivision plan. Like you build a subdivision. Well, you build part of it first and then you see how that's going. And then you come back and build the rest of it, kind of break it up. It doesn't seem like people are against the idea altogether. I haven't really seen a lot of that. They just want to say in the implementation and they have concerns about being heard on size, scale and scope. That's why you got to talk about regulation, because the government, their thing for everything is whether it's a fly or a nail, they swing a hammer because that's all they do. Right. This is why it's so important to talk about the regulation folks of this, because even the government themselves doesn't seem to get on the same page. But once they decide it's done and it goes forward. And we need to hash these things out now because we're going to do this over and over and over and over again, aren't we? That's true. And I want to also caveat this by saying that this type of project, if it was done maybe on private land, perhaps it wouldn't have been so contentious. But because it has so much overlap on BLM land, close to very sensitive farmland and historical sites, maybe there would be less opposition. But just when this administration in particular just has, we need to fulfill these goals by 2030. If we don't achieve this amount of megawattage by 2030 for onshore goals, we are contributing to the climate crisis, et cetera. So they, they alarm and they scare and they fear monger in this regard. And the problem with this project is too, I was reading in a follow-up article reports that came out in, in wake of our reporting because the locals expressed their frustrations to me that a lot of the local media has just been taking money from Magic Valley um, Energy Company, not questioning the project as much, now they started to be a little more even-handed and fair in their coverage and they started to highlight the concerns of people who would be impacted by this potential project but this is not really a free market project and the reason why you're seeing a lot of skepticism with this even though there's a private shell company coming in claiming to be of magic valley i read that this actually would be funded primarily through subsidies if it were to be approved after this eis uh, is considered there's a 60-day comment period if this is you know, people don't challenge it and they decide to proceed with it. Most of the funding is going to come from this recent omnibus bill. And so a lot of people should have questions about the nature of this project. Is this really being brought about by a free market or a market enterprise system? No, this is government pushing this. And I think when people see 
government pushing these technologies well before their prime, that's going to create a lot of upheaval. I wouldn't say physical upheaval, but a lot of discord, a lot of disagreement with this because it seems like a coercive policy. Like you have to get on board to achieve these goals or else you're contributing terribly to the environment. But with the shortcomings of these projects, again, wind is intermittent. This is not going to be a truly free market project. It's a highly subsidized project. And if we look at history, highly subsidized projects, namely in the form of Solyndra, they don't work out. They become defunct. A lot of these technologies, when they're created before their prime, they don't work as efficiently as they can. They're not reliable. They stress the grid. And so understandably, the locals are very opposed to something of this magnitude across 73,000 BLM land acres uh, because it doesn't work to its full potential. Like I said, if it was on private land in a smaller magnitude and in not so sensitive areas, perhaps there would be less opposition to this. But because this is a whole of the government type of suggestion or proposal, of course, there's going to be opposition to it. So I think people... Um, they don't want to deviate from what works in terms of energy. If, if oil and gas or nuclear even, nuclear is the true green energy source. I think that people are starting to come around to. Geothermal is even great. I think in some pockets of Idaho, they have geothermal. Geothermal is actually something I wish people would discuss more. It's very similar to fracking, uses a lot of the technology. It has a 24 power baseload. It's not a perfect system, of course, but I think it'd be far more efficient than solar or wind could be. Um, just because you see what happens in Iceland and some other areas in the United States where it's tried on a more kind of case-by-case um, -case basis. But they're not looking at real technologies which will have less of an environmental footprint. They're done largely underground the or in, in a smaller scale. Uh, for a nuclear reactor, you're not using as much land as you would for solar and wind. And same with geothermal. A lot of geothermal, you have a little bit of um, below surface and then above surface. doesn't really take up that much of land. And people are questioning whether or not these are truly green, um, wind and solar, because of how many vast amount of acres that have to be used. And again, you're going to have to use fossil fuels one way or another. You're not getting rid of them. You're just pretending to say that we are ridding ourselves of it, but you're still needing them to, to have these technologies function. And so Lava Ridge, like I said, is just one case study of many. And we're going to see more of this. And I think you'll see opposition continue to build because these locals are not consulted you have these projects coming in like sharks, loan sharks, and, and trying to extort them and say, you have to get along. We're going to promise you these great things or else, you know, we'll bully you or we'll we'll make you feel guilty for not being a part of the solution. And and people don't like to be told what to do. It's not because they can't get along with, with progress. It's just a matter of forcing people off of what works is never a good way to build rapport. Gabrielle Hoffman joining us. I'm cynical on these things for a different reason. Um, I'm not against them, okay? I'm not. I'm just healthily cynical, and I, I need things explained, and I want to know the ins and the outs of it. Here's my thing. I come from the land of the coal mines. I know what a clear-cut mountaintop removal strip mine looks like. It's not pretty. It's ugly. It has tremendous environmental impact because of runoff and drainage and all sorts of things. 
and it can be deadly. We've had flooding and runoff and landslides and all sorts of things that destroy all sorts of things. Those are very real environmental practical concerns. My thing is, I've seen it before. I've seen these big solar farms or some near where I live. They're not real pretty to look at. When you got to clear cut a big area of land to put down a bunch of solar panels, that's still clear cut, and whether it's for green energy mm -hmm. or not. Windmills are a little bit cooler to look at, but they do have a very large footprint, um, infrastructure footprint and in how they do stuff. So it's something to consider. I wonder what you just said. Part of the pushback is to the average person, the buzzword of green energy doesn't mean anything to them if the environment that they're trying to protect gets destroyed anyway. Mm -hmm. If it's destroyed by green energy or destroyed by a coal company or destroyed by an oil refinery or whatever. I know that sounds really basic and hillbilly and simplified, but I think that that's a very real thing. When you talk to the people of Idaho, you know, it's not that they're against green energy. It's just like, well, what's the point of green energy if it's going to destroy our landscape at the same time? And therein lies the paradox with green energy. A lot of what people are seeing, whether it's onshore, offshore wind, solar farms, there are there's even a, a solar farm proposal in Virginia that would be the largest solar farm of its kind, very similar. And, and the concern is you'll have to resort to deforestation to make sure this project comes to fruition. And I bet the same is happening in West Virginia and other places too. And so the mantra of when you get to the root of this, people people are smart. I think a lot of people really underestimate Americans and flyover country and outside the coasts. They're very resourceful people. They're not just random people who are bigoted backwards, don't know what happens around them. I think those closest to the land, whether they're outdoorsy or they're working on productive farmland, they know what is best for their surroundings. They are very conscious about the environment because if you're working, let's say in agriculture, your industry is very regulated. You, let's say you're a hunting or fishing guide. You're very aware of your surroundings and the elements because you have to deal with frequent encounters with wildlife, let's say grizzly bears or other predators, wolves, what have you, if you're in these kind of areas. So I wanna trust, and, and I, I look to trusting people who are closest to these situations. They know this area, they live here, they subsist here, they recreate here. And when they tell you that they are not really going along the lines of, we have to destroy the environment to save it, when they see that most of these projects ultimately take that type of position, they see the problems inset in wind and solar because you're not really saving anything. It's kind of a virtue signal. I hate to use that terminology, but it really is because why would you want to resort to deforestation, clear cutting, and use a lot more and exhaust a lot more land to, uh, to produce energy that is not necessarily reliable in the long run? And then you have all this impact, disruptions to nature, uh, lots of concrete, uh, intermittent energy sources. So people see that it's it's not really efficient at this point in time, and maybe it won't be ever, because why do you have to, and, and also you're not really saving much on energy. I'm noticing here in Virginia, prior to my governor going into office, they put very cleverly Democrats, when they had control for about two years, they put a stipulation in our so-called Green New Energy, or Green New Deal, Virginia's Green New Deal, that you have to achieve net zero and it will take a repeal of the law to remove different um, factors and conditions to speed up so-called net zero. So they have, we, Virginia is forced to have to do moving away from oil, coal and gas and really adopting solar and wind. And I'm seeing in my energy utility bills that I'm having to pay 
a surcharge for solar and wind that I'm not even using. And my energy bills are a lot more expensive. And I think it's the same. Um, and, and these people have these natural fears as well in Idaho because they're going to see their energy bills go up, even though it's promised that the upfront cost may be high, but eventually you're going to see really, really low cost. And people don't like those gimmicks. When they're told that something is going to be efficient and practical, they want to see those effects immediately, not within a 10-year, 15-year time span. And oftentimes for adopting these so-called newer technologies or so-called green technologies, um, you're going to be paying more in the long run. Uh, upfront costs, maintenance costs, you're not really saving much. Um, and then you're you're losing a lot of valuable land. You're losing precious resources, even worse, I think, than you would if you were doing oil and gas and coal exploration. Um, that's probably very controversial to say, but those existing technologies to me in nuclear reactors and even geothermal tend to be a lot safer and more practical for the environment than solar and wind. I just, I've become a lot more skeptical of, of these two in particular, just because of how much land is exhausted and, and the lack of efficiency, I think, with it. So color me a skeptic too, um, with these technologies when they're touted as environmentally friendly and they really don't deliver and, and they cause a lot of friction in these communities too. This is Gabriella Hoffman joining us. This is why I tend to try to trend as much as I can towards all of the above on this stuff. We should have solar. We should have wind. We should have hydroelectric. We should have geothermal. We should, if we have all of it, because look, certain parts that like geothermal works great in Iceland. Mm -hmm. It's probably not going to work great in some other parts of the country and uh -huh. other parts of the world, right? We need all of the above and then kind of let the local folks be like, this is what's going to work best here, so on and so forth. There's things like nuclear that obviously need larger controls, more of a federal thing. But this is why I trend towards all of the above on the, the technology. And I want to trend as much as I can towards local control when it comes to mm -hmm. conservation and environmental policy. Because I think, like you said, the local folks usually have a pretty good handle, not companies, not government people, not investors. The people that actually live on the land, work the land, and have their livelihood with the land, they're probably going to be the best conservationists you ever find anyway. We've talked about this in other areas. We should probably give them more input when it comes to the regulatory state. Yeah. I totally agree with that assessment. And what some of the locals in Magic Valley told me is that the local BLM people were very much in agreement with their concerns. And then they have to deal with superiors in the federal office who are fully in line with this net zero policy that you have to do it, you can't contest it, you just have to do it. It's, it's essential, we have to do it to fix the climate crisis in their mind. So you'll even find bureaucrats who live in areas like Magic Valley, Idaho, who do share the same concerns of the locals because they are of that region too. And they were uh, enlisted with representing this region because they're familiar with it. So I, I wanna give the benefit of the doubt to some uh, careerists who do care and do listen to the concerns. And, and from what I understand, that's the case here, but they have to contend with um, federal, you know, um, kind of pushback and, and different goals because they're far removed from the situation, from the area. They don't really come there except to say, okay, we'll have a few photo ops and we're gonna meet with people who agree with us and we're gonna allow for debate and discussion on this topic. 
I've seen it with the new interior secretary. Unfortunately, she promises that she's going to give deference to the locals. She'll meet with some people and say, okay, I checked this off and we heard from people, but they have predetermined conclusions. A lot of people on the federal side when they're working in these kind of conservation agencies, but those on the ground who are affiliated with BLM or Fish and Wildlife Service, they tend to be more attuned to the concerns of locals because like I said, they live there, they commune with these people and they know the region better. But the federal federal side, the the like I said, interior secretary, her deputies, they really don't see it that way because they're just taking marching orders, truth be told, from the Biden administration. And like I said, they, they save face and they say, yes, we did our duty, we heard input, but we have this predetermined goal. We just have to go according to the administrative act. This is a, a law that is for any law. And so you have to go by procedure, although Biden's administration has violated that with comment period, not allowing for 45 or 60 days um, whenever the rules come out. So to me, it seems like they're not really, this administration in my mind, except for those who are kind of um, decentralized, even though they may work for BLM or some of these related entities, National Park Service, those who are living in DC, don't really care what the locals think. They just have this agenda and the locals will have to agree or they will be, you know, targeted or penalized or really ostracized for not going along this agenda. They'll be, they'll be vilified essentially uh, through marketing campaigns in the future. Maybe they'll be subject to um, WOTUS rules. You know, the, the WOTUS rules from the Obama era are back. Maybe they'll target these people. For, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a very sinister thing, but I feel like if you don't, willingly work with government to achieve their goals in this respect. They'll find some way to oppose you, maybe make it difficult for you to tend your land, find a WOTUS restriction or WOTUS violation or something of that nature. I don't ever want it to be that way again. Um, but they, they're really very determined to push this. And it doesn't matter what type of science is presented to them. It doesn't matter the pushback from the locals. I really think apart from court cases, if this is challenged in the court of law, with respect to the Lava Wadrin project, the only thing I can see foresee foreseeable uh, stopgap to this would be opposition from the Friends of Minidoka because they love to listen to tribal input, so to speak, but they don't even listen to tribal input when it kind of inconveniences their agenda. But the only, the only way I see it stopping is if the people from Friends of Minidoka, the National Historic Site, overwhelmingly have a seat at the table and say, please stop this or move this elsewhere. Um, but it, for the most part, I think it's going to proceed. I hate to 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 chime in like that. But I, I like I said, what I've seen from other directives from this administration, they proceed with these projects doesn't matter what type of opposition there is. Yeah, Gabrielle Hoffman, it's a good point. We sh we broad brush. I do it, too. You do it. We broad brush these government officials, especially a big organization like BLM or the Interior Department or whatever. There's a lot of good people in there trying to do their Absolutely. best. Absolutely. So that's something we should work on. Gabriella Hoffman, always enjoy talking this stuff, uh, especially conservation related stuff. You can plug the podcast now. Let folks know where they can find you, follow you and keep up with you till we get you back on Hertel again. Absolutely. And we'll have much to discuss in the future. Conservation District of Conservation is my podcast that you've so generously touted and promoted here on your program. I really appreciate that. We're on all podcast players. We've had a lot of great interviews recently. I'm focusing a lot on interviews and we're going to be mixing it up with some public policy discussions. I actually have a really fascinating interview about artificial intelligence being used to help mitigate high intensity wildfires coming up next week or by the time this airs comes to air uh, next week. I spoke to one of my acquaintances who was in the DOD and she wrote about how they're using AI to help combat these really high intensity fires. Really fascinating discussion. 
someone I've known for a while, really fascinating gal. She was a Kiowa pilot um, and, and she's been in the news before. And so we have a lot of really interesting stuff. I'm gonna talk about some <laughs> interesting bills. Um, there was a resolution in Wyoming to ban electric vehicles by 2035. I thought that was really funny. Um, so we'll talk about what's trending in the outdoor news. So I hope your listeners do come and check it out. We're also gonna be keeping tabs on what the 118th Congress is doing because it's divided Congress. You have the Republicans controlling the House, Democrats narrowly controlling the Senate. There'll be a lot of conservation environmental pieces to break down. So we're gonna be on top of that type of legislation as well. And I'm on social media, very easy to find me, Young Voices. And I look forward to connecting with anyone and coming back on the podcast, of course. Yeah, we love having you. We'll keep having you. Always do good work, my friend, Gabriella Hoffman. Great seeing you again. Thank you, Andrew. Good to talk to you. Happy weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.